things for about eight weeks now. And uh, sorry, Theo, if I hit you in the eye then. Uh, I've been throwing things out. Uh, and we've been looking at this new movement that you and I are birthed into. We've been birthed into something, <coughs> excuse me, something new. <coughs> Pardon. <coughs> we've been birthed into something new and something different. Uh, the Greek word kainos that was used on several occasions when Jesus taught, they said, what's this new teaching? It's this Greek word kainos. Jesus uh, stood up and said, this is my blood of a new covenant, a new agreement. And this word new means literally unheralded, unseen before, undone. It's literally a brand spanking new thing. So whatever it was that Jesus brought to the religious landscape of the day, it was something totally and utterly new than what they knew before he came. The movement that follows God after the resurrection of Jesus was different to the movement that followed God before the resurrection of Jesus. We know this because we've been looking at some of the things over the last probably eight weeks. <coughs> I went into, uh, uh, bumped into a friend of mine um, yesterday, <coughs> uh, mate of mine who used to manage Dan Murphy's in Balna. He was one of the managers when I was there. Anyway, I found out he's down here in Lismore, so I popped my head in, said g'day to him yesterday. Don't have to use excuses, right? Okay. <coughs> Jackie wanted to go into Dan Murphy's yesterday. And so I, okay, whatever, I'll come with you. And I sort of walked in, hey, there's me mate. And I bumped into him. And he was telling me about the company and, and it was really interesting. He was, he was telling me about his move down back here to Lismore. He lives here, so it's closer to home. But he was telling me about some of the changes in the company. And there's some radical changes have taken place. Um, we used to want to uh, train up our staff to be so good that other businesses would poach. Our goal was to be that good that everybody else tried to poach our staff. Now we're poaching everybody else's staff. Uh, something's gone wrong there. We used to tell everybody that came through the doors that we were working, we had these pathways to sort of progress you and you could go from strength to strength in our company. And uh, now they've made it harder for people in the company to jump through hoops and so on to get to a bigger salary or a management position. And instead they're just grabbing people from other industries and bringing them in and giving them top dollar and top billing and, and leadership and management and, and that. And so as he was talking to me, I just kept on thinking, this: the company that I left is very different to that company if I was to go back now. Chalk and cheese, totally different. And of course it made me think about church and that's exactly... What this movement called church is, it's, it's meant to be radically different, this side of the cross, to follow God and to represent him here on earth, than what it was the other side of the cross before the sacrifice and the death of Jesus. And this is, it, to, us, to us, it's not such a confronting thought, because we don't have thousands of years of Jewish history behind us. We don't have all these years of, of what we would term legalism, although we do have lots and lots of legalism in the church today. We, we, would, we would say that we're uh, people of the new. But I wonder when I go and I look at the life of Jesus and I look at the teachings of Jesus and the ethics and the values of Jesus, how much of the old is still here? How much is still hanging around? How much have we mixed together? We're not because we're bad people. We just don't understand because we've maybe been brought up in a culture where we just sort of go along with that culture and we haven't really stopped and asked ourselves the question, what did Jesus mean when he said anew? Uh, go with me to Luke chapter 22. 
And verse 19, 20, and this is where we springboarded off all this, all this series we've been going down. And Jesus said this, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them. And we understand that this was the Passover festival. This was a festival that was done in remembrance of Moses. And Jesus just turns the whole thing around and goes, from this point on, you're going to do this in remembrance of me. Forget Moses. Forget the old. There's something new happening here. Forget the focus on Moses. Focus on me. Forget the focus on law. Focus on me. And he changes the whole focus. And to them, they probably would have dropped their plate. They would have wanted to drop their plate. It would be so shocking for this to take place. But for us, we just read it and we just go, this is our communion message. But to them, it had such greater impact. And he takes the bread, he thanks, he gives it to them. He says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What? Just go with me on this, boys. Likewise, he took the cup after supper. Isn't that interesting? So he must have broken the bread. Then they must have actually had their meal. Then they did the wine sometime afterwards, not just together like we do. They must have actually had the food, and then there's some period of time, then they did the wine. So communion can do it like that. Did you know that? You can actually have your supper, and then we can do that. But we don't, because we've got a short amount of time when we're together. But I'm just letting you know, a lot of the things that we do, we do for convenience, not necessarily because they're totally the way it has to be done. Likewise, he took the cup after supper and says, this is the cup of the new covenant. And there's that word new. In my blood, which is shed for you. That word covenant means agreement. This is my blood being shed. In other words, what he's saying to them is you have lived under an agreement for centuries as a people. I'm bringing you a new agreement, totally new agreement. We're going to do things differently now when it comes to mankind and God. Again, we sit here and we go, that's a great scripture. To them, imagine the emotion and the mental gymnastics that would have been going on. So we've been looking at that and trying to understand What exactly does that mean for us? Because I think when I read that, I think the intention of God is that should have an impact on me. I shouldn't just read that as, oh, that's just the communion message. I should read that and go, this is new, this is different. I'm a part of a brand new movement, a movement that never existed uh, before Jesus Christ was resurrected uh, from the dead. This new message, a previously unexisting, brand-spanking new arrangement between God and man. So the message Jesus gave the disciples to take into the whole world was different to the message Moses brought down from the mountain. And we need to understand this because we're told to take Jesus' message to the world, not Moses' message. What was Moses' message? Here are the rules. Here are the rules and you better do them. And if you do them, God's going to bless you. And if you don't do the rules, it's over. This is the message Moses had. So when Jesus, again, Matthew 28, stands up after the resurrection, gathers his people, says, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them all things that I've commanded you. Not what Moses commanded you. That, 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 that season is over in human history. So the message that we take to the world is a message of grace. It's the message of Jesus' life, Jesus' values, Jesus' culture, not the message of legalism, law, and Moses. This is an a amazing concept that these people, 12 uneducated southern Galilean hillbillies had to comprehend. I wonder whether that's why Jesus picked 12 somewhat backwards human beings. Because they wouldn't try to intellectually work. They, they, they knew they weren't smart enough. And so maybe he picked 12, for lack of a better word, he picked 12 dummies. Because he knew they'll go, okay, let's do it. 
without even thinking about the consequences of how stupid they sounded, how stupid they may have looked or what may have happened to them. They just went, okay, and they did it. And they learned along the way that, hey, this thing's not easy. And there's a price to pay, but they were so convinced by what they saw, this resurrected Jesus with holes in his hands and holes in his feet, that, that they went, you know what, even if we don't understand it all, we know that that happened and we're going to plough through and we're going to begin this movement. And because they did, we're sitting here 2019 riding on the coattails of these great men and women of God that have paved the way with the message of Jesus Christ. It's exciting. So why did God feel the need to come up with a new agreement? I'm just covering some stuff and bringing in some ropes here. Why did he need to come up with a new agreement? Very simply because the old one was never meant to be permanent. Okay? The writer to Hebrews chapter 8 verse 7 says this, For if that first covenant had been faultless, and he's writing to a Jewish audience, people that understand everything about the old, they get it. All the symbolism and the sacrifices and the courtyards and the chandeliers, they get it all. So he's writing to them and he's trying to say all this stuff was just a shadow pointing towards Jesus. And when Jesus came, that's all done away with. And here's what he says. If the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. In other words, the first one had faults with it. You know what the biggest fault was in the first covenant? You and me. We were the biggest fault. What did God say? If you obey, I'll bless you. If you fail... I'll curse you. Who's the bulk of responsibility falling upon? You and me. That was the biggest fault with the old agreement. It all came back to you and me, and we're just not good enough. And that's one of the major lessons that we see throughout the the history of the Old Testament is that we're not good enough, but that was a lesson that God deliberately wanted mankind to learn through the nation of Israel. We're not good enough, and we can't do it. Verse 13 says, in that he says, a new covenant, he's made the first one obsolete. Obsolete. You ever thought about that? That first covenant, the the Mount Sinai covenant, the rules, the regulations, the writer of the Hebrews is saying all that stuff, it's now obsolete. It's obsolete now. It doesn't matter anymore. It's not the basis upon which we get relationship with God. It's not the basis upon which you have right standing with God. It's not the basis upon which you can petition your Heavenly Father. It's not the basis upon which he hands out his love anymore. It's all gone. It's obsolete. He's made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. I don't know about you, but I feel like the church, particularly here in the West, I feel like we are in desperate need of laying a hold of that scripture and going, you know what, God, it is old. It needs to vanish away and disappear. This mixing of old and new needs to vanish and disappear. You know why? Because here's one thing I know. There's not a human being on planet Earth that doesn't want love. They might not realize it, There might be a whole bunch of stuff packed in there, but there's not a person on planet Earth that doesn't crave love and belonging, that doesn't crave acceptance. You might never see it because of all the stuff and the numbing of the heart and the calluses, but you know what? Deep down inside, people are people. I was talking to Dave Smethurst last last week. (coughs) He came. And we're having a chat about the work he's doing over in in Slovakia and um, Slovenia and all these Eastern Bloc nations and working with these uh, kids and these orphans. They sponsor about 6,000 orphans and a lot of those orphans, some of them are brain damaged and so on. They'd be dead if it wasn't for what they're doing. But he made this statement to me and I can resonate with it because I've been to different nations myself. And I remember the first time I left this country, I don't know what I thought. I thought I'd go, I thought that people would be like aliens completely different. You know, I thought that, oh, because your skin colour is different, you eat different food, that you'll be totally different. You know what I've learnt? doesn't matter which country I go to, people are still the same. They still love their children. They've still got dreams for their future. They still get embarrassed. 
They still feel shame over things that they may have done. They still do things that they know they shouldn't do and they don't want to do, but they don't know how to stop. The habit patterns are so entrenched in their life. People are people no matter where you go. I reckon if Jesus was here today, that people would still be attracted to him. I reckon if Jesus was here, people would still be attracted to him, the person. His heart, his attitude, his ethics, his values, what he valued. I still think that Jesus Christ is attractive in 2019 in Ganella Bar. Sometimes the problem is the people who are there to see Jesus. You know, one of my favourite stories in the Bible is, uh, who's, the, who's the little short Zacchaeus? Little short tax collector dude that nobody liked? <laughs> yeah? Understandably so. I mean, he's a, he's a Jew, but he's working for the Romans, extorting exorbitant taxes out of his own people, so his own people hate him. But the Romans don't like him because he's a Jew. They're just using the dude, but he's making a bit of cash nice and quick while he can. And then we know the story that Jesus is coming to town and the Bible actually says this. Sorry, the, the writer, I think it's in, the, in, in Luke writes it, I think. Luke says this, that, that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus and he says this, he says Zacchaeus couldn't see Jesus because of the people that were there to see Jesus. He couldn't see Jesus because of the people that were there to see Jesus. There was this crowd and he couldn't see through so he climbed up a tree and looked down the tree, and he saw Jesus by looking down. And, of course, Jesus saw him and said, Hey, I'm coming home to your house for dinner, which I think is an awesome evangelism strategy. Just go up, find a complete stranger, and say, Hey, I'm coming to your house for dinner, and he'll get saved. That happened for Jesus. Zacchaeus gets saved. But it's interesting to me that the people that were there cheering and wanting to see Jesus were the reason why Zacchaeus couldn't see Jesus. And I wonder sometimes whether there's a bit of a message in that for the church. Maybe people can't see Jesus sometimes because of the people who are standing there seeing Jesus. We're blocking their view with our judgmentalism and our criticism. And we're blocking out their view with the, the attitudes that we have. And, and, and maybe, maybe, I'm not saying anyone here, but I'm just saying maybe, maybe one of the reasons why they can't see Jesus is because of the people who are standing there seeing Jesus. And so people have got to climb up trees. To see Jesus, you shouldn't have to climb a tree to see You shouldn't have to climb nothing. We should be there going, here, come through. Let me grab you by the hand. Let me walk you straight to him and say, guess what, Jesus? Here's Zach. But they wouldn't let him through. They didn't like his job or they thought he was too short or maybe he smelt, didn't brush his hair. His teeth had grass on it or something. I don't know. You know, it was the wrong persuasion. I don't know. But they wouldn't let him see. Anyway, that's, that's, just, that's free. That You don't have to... That, that was free. That just came out. But anyway, the first one was faulty. The first one <laughs> was faulty. See, God always had a plan to do something different. He always had a plan that was way bigger than just what was going on under the old agreement. So if we're meant to be people of God living in the new, then what are the differences between the old and the new. And this is what I want to get to this morning. I'm not going to finish it today, but I want to have a look at pulling some strings, you know, just give you six basic points of what are some of the differences between the old and the new. And maybe you can look at yourself and maybe you can examine your own heart and your own life before God and the way you see others and maybe the way you see the world around you and so on. Or maybe you can do a little bit of... (coughs) A business there uh, with God. But, um, you know, I, I learned something recently. I heard a guy say there's a fine line between a, a long sermon and a hostage situation. So I won't keep you really, really long. I'll, I'll rush into this from here on in. <coughs> uh, but the first thing, the old agreement was between God and a nation. 
The new agreement is between God and individuals of every nation. You know, this is one of the reasons why you shouldn't necessarily go into the old covenant, the old agreement, and try to find theology of how God sees you as an individual now. The old agreement was between God and a nation. And there was a particular agreement that they had with one another. Under the new, God's agreement is not made with any particular nation. It's made with any person of any tribe or nation that will call upon the name of the Lord. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So under the old, we've got this relationship between God and one nation. You know, Israel were not the only nation on planet Earth. We know that because they were attacked and plundered and pillaged at different times by so many other nations. But they're the nation. They were the nation that God chose to have a relationship with. God chose them. He could have chosen any nation he wanted, but he made an agreement and he chose that race of people. And so we've got this story and this history throughout the Old Testament of God's dealings primarily with a nation almost to the exclusion of all others. But we come this side of the cross and God now has an agreement with individuals of every tribe, nation and tongue. It's the inclusion of all others. It's not exclusive anymore. Now God's agreement and arrangement with mankind is inclusive because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. But God's plan was always to land where we are now. From the very beginning, God's plan was that, that, that the church, that his movement, his relationship with mankind would be what it is now, not what it was back then. And here's how I know that. Go to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1 to 3. God makes an agreement with Abraham before he makes an agreement with Moses on a mountain and gives him ten commandments. And here's what he says to, to, to Abraham. And out of Abraham came the Jewish nation, Israel. And here's what he says. He says, now the Lord had said to Abram, this is before he changed his name, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house. Go to a land that I'll show you. Abraham, this must have freaked him out because Abram was not a Christian. Abram was from a place called Ur of the Chaldees. Abram worshipped the moon god. He did. He worshipped the moon god. And we don't know how this happened, but God, how many of you know God can break through your psyche regardless of what you think, regardless of what you worship, regardless of who you are? God can bust into your world like that. He can just do that. He did it to Saul. Saul was on his way to kill people. And there's a blinding light. Next thing you know, Saul writes three quarters of what we know about the new movement of God in the book. He wasn't, he had no intention. He's just marching along to kill people. Next thing, bang, ah, who are you? It's Jesus, gotcha. Woo, hook, line, sinker, you're mine now. He did the same thing with Abram. Abram's just doing his normal stuff, whatever moon worshippers do. I don't know what moon worshippers do, but Abram's just doing his moon worshipping stuff. And then this God breaks into his world and says, hey, I've got a plan for you. I want you to leave everything you know, your family, your land, your works, everything, and I want you to pack up and just go. He doesn't even tell him where he's going to go. He just says, go. And Abram has to go home to his wife. And I think Cyclone Jackie might be dangerous. Imagine going home to Cyclone Sarah. Sarah, we're going. Where are we going? I don't know. Why are we going? No idea. Who told you? God, which God? Don't know. But we're just going to do it anyway. Oh, of course, love. No worries. Let me just put the dishes away. What? Can I uproot the kids for what? I don't think she had kids at the time, but anyway. It was nice for a dramatic effect. And so God comes and he says to Abram, here's what we're going to do. And then he says this, I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you and I'll make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. Watch this. And in you, the Jewish 
people shall be blessed. Is that what it says? In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God's original intention was that we be standing where we are now. The old covenant, old agreement, old arrangement, God's agreement to the nation was a temporary, short-term thing. So why would God create some temporary, short-term thing with a nation knowing that this covenant's faulty, it's not going to last, it won't be around forever? Why would he do that? Well, we get a little bit of insight into that. Psalm 67, 6 and 7 says this. It says, God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, but here's why. God shall bless us and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. So God's going to bless us. God had to have a focal point for the nations of the earth to look and go, okay, so the real created God. Keep in mind, there are thousands of gods at this period in human history. There are gods for everything. Gods for everything. Anyone could have turned up and said, well, I've got a new God. His name is Vegemite. And uh, his little thing, just we make him at the markets and we sell him. But Vegemite's a great God, I'll tell you right now. Best God out there. Tastes good too. <laughs> you know? Could have done that. But God's, God's real. God's not a statue. He's not something carved with man's hand. He's not something made in the image of anything. God is God, the creator God. So it says, here's the thing. I'll give you something tangible and real. And I'll work with this nation. I'll give the world, the nations out there, something tangible and real to fear. Something tangible and real to respect. Something tangible and real to see the impact and the effect of. And so there's this focal point on Israel. And the psalmist says that God's going to bless you. But the reason he's going to bless you is not just so you can sit there and get fat and happy and look like you're the most prosperous nation on earth. That's just, that's, that's not the reason. The real reason why I'm blessing you is so that all the other nations will fear God. All these other nations are going to look and go, wow. Wow. When you worship Ur, uh, the moon gods... Um, I don't know, we couldn't really tell. Was, was that an effect of worshipping a moon god or not? We don't know, but we just do it anyway because it's our culture. But we can see a real tangible connection here between this Yahweh, this God of the Jews, and the nation and how it rises and how it falls. We can see a tangible connection here. In Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 23, it says this. It says, God, and who is like your people? Like Israel, the one nation on the earth, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people. Here's why. To make for himself a name. To make for himself a name. God chose Israel of all the nations of the earth and walked with them through a period of human history so that other nations would fear him and that he could make his own name great. It was never about the nation of Israel. It was about God making his name great. It was about the nations of the earth going, that God, he's the real deal. That God is the mover and shaker of things. That God is the one that really blesses your socks off. That God is the one that if you get on his bad side, woo, look out. You'll part the seas and he'll drown the whole army. Stay on the good side of that God. There's a reverence and a reality about that God. The old agreement was between God and a nation. The new agreement is between God and individuals of every nation. Romans 10.13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who's a whoever in here? Have we got any whoever's in here? 
Yep, doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Gentile, Lebanese, Greek, Chinese, whatever. Uh, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, the effect of that is that whosoever shall be saved. God will save anybody who calls upon him. So the first difference is the old agreements between God and a nation, the new agreement between God and individuals of every nation. Second difference, Israel as a nation rose on the back of its great faith in God. Under the new agreement, the church rises on the back of God's great faith in men. Israel rose on the back of its great faith in God. The problem with that is it fell on the back of its poor faith too. When they're worshipping God and loving God, they're blessed, they're raiding, they're pillaging, they're, they're living the dream. When they turn their back on God, guess what happened? They plummeted down. Israel rose and fell on the back of their own faith in God. As when their faith was strong and their commitment was strong and they were blessed and everything honoured. When their faith was weak and they fell away and so on, guess what? They were depleted, they were beaten. They rose and they fell on the back of their great faith in God. Under the new agreement, the church doesn't rise and fall on the back of our great faith in God. We rise and fall on the back of God's great faith in us. And God has great faith in us. God has more faith in you than you do in him. How do I know that? Because I look again at the 12 men that Jesus chose. You know when Jesus in his darkest hour was praying, Father, if there's another way we can do this, take it away. You know when they took him and they crucified him and they beat him and so on. You know, nearly every one of those men scattered and took off and left him. After three years of investing into them and trying to show them who he was, trying to educate them and tell them this is where we're going with this thing, after three years they still turned their back and ran from him. Lucky he had faith in them. Lucky he believed in them. Otherwise he might have just punted them. If you go back to the Old Testament, if he wanted to go back to the old agreement, he had every reason to punt those dudes and get rid of them. And just as it is today, God, if we wouldn't live under an old agreement, and it's all about your works and my works and your performance and my performance, God has every reason, every valid reason right now to punt you out of his family and me. If I was Israel, could I stand right now here? If you were Israel, would you be standing today? Are you obeying every commandment of God? Are you committed? Do you have no other gods before him? Is your mind pure, your heart pure? Are you doing the right things? Could we stand before God under this new agreement if we want to reach back into the law? I'm telling you right now, there's nobody in this room that could do that. None of us. But thankfully, under the new agreement, we don't rise and fall on the back of our great faith in God. We rise because of God's great faith in us. The church exists in the year 2019, not because we have all, as a combined unit, as a movement, everybody has been so full of faith and passion for Jesus. It's because Jesus has been so faithful and passionate towards us that he maintains us and he carries us. And that's why we're still here. We've all been through battles, we've all had ups, we've all had downs. I'm so grateful for the sustaining power of God. I'm so grateful that I don't hold God in the palm of my hand, but he holds me in the palm of his. If I held God in the palm of my hand, guess what? I would have dropped him a few times. I would have dropped him on a few occasions, but I don't hold him in the palm of my hand. He holds me in the palm of his. Israel rose on the back of its great faith in God. The church rises on the back of God's great faith in man. As long as Israel walked in obedience, they were blessed, protected, successful. But it was a work-based agreement. They had to work and they had to do the right thing in order to get the blessing and the protection and so on. Under the new agreement, the people of God are saved and we are sustained by God's grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. 8 to 10. For by grace you've been saved. Say that. By grace you've been saved. Now I wonder deep down inside whether we really believe that. wonder whether we really believe that. Because there's so much of the old that's still there. 
To, to, to stand here and say, I'm saved by grace. That's 100%. That statement means 100% grace, not 99% grace and 1% you. That is 100% grace, 100% God. None of you. Nothing of you. All God. All you did was accepted that which was offered to you. You accepted an invitation that he handed to you. I wonder deep down inside whether we really grasp that, we understand that we are saved 100% by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works. Nothing you can do. Nothing you can do. Under the old, you've got to do everything. Under the new, there's nothing you can do. Old, you've got to get everything right. Under the new, I understand there's nothing I can get right. But by the grace of God. But by the transforming, upholding, powerful grace of God. God accepts us not on the basis of our performance, but on the basis of his own free will choice to do so. Jesus was God's way of saying... I accept you regardless. I accept you regardless. God loves you because he made a free will choice to do it. Think about that for a second. That's mind-boggling. Creator of the universe is looking down at you right now. He knows every thought you've had in the last 24 hours, everything you've looked at, everything you've done, everything you've said, the way you've treated people around you, the way you've, you've wanted to treat people around you. Maybe you haven't had the let it out. He knows all that about you, all of it. Yet he's making a choice to keep you in his family. God's free will choice. That's why you're here. We feel like it's because we made a choice. We just accepted a choice that he'd already made. He made the choice. He said, mankind, you're worth it. Spots, wrinkles, warts, smells, hair, or lack of. Saw a card. Samson. He was standing there and his hair was all gone. And God said to him, your strength is still in your hair, but I've just taken it off your head and it's coming out your nose and your ears just to keep you humble. And he had all this hair coming out his nose and ears. God accepts us not on the basis of our performance, but the basis of his own free will choice. Not only do we enter by grace, but we're actually sustained by the grace of God. If you don't believe you're sustained by the grace of God, here's what your relationship with Jesus will look like. It will look like a yo-yo. Up and down, 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 up and down. Also, if you think that you're sustained by your own works, you're fairly arrogant too. Because I'll guarantee there's stuff you do wrong that you don't even know is wrong. Go back to the Old Testament. You know one of the things that the priests had to do? Every year they had a special sacrifice. You know what it was for? For the sins committed in ignorance. So God even knew under the old agreement there are going to be people that are going to do things in complete ignorance, not even realise, but it's still got to be dealt with. It still has to be dealt with. It's still going to cost an animal its life and they've still got to be shedding of blood even for the sins committed in ignorance. You know? But God loves you. And God accepts you and you're in his family because of his choice. His choice. He extends the invitation to all of humanity. And when we accept that invitation, we're not saved even because we made the choice to accept it. We were saved before that. We just accepted it. He made the choice that we were worthy as Jesus hung on the cross. The old was works-based and the new is grace-based. I'll finish with this. We'll just get through those, those two. 
years and years ago, um, Johnny, <coughs> my, my, uh, our middle son, we were living uh, on the water in Ballina and me and Jackie, we went out the back, we had this little patch of sand <coughs> the back of our house and we went out there and I'm sitting on the sand and we're having a chat and the three boys were in the water swimming at the time and it kind of was a canal and it kind of dropped off like that. And so they knew the certain point they could go to. They could only go to a certain point about here and as long as they stayed there, they could swim. <coughs> so we're sitting down on the, on the little patch of grass there <coughs> watching the kids have a swim and stuff like that and, and saying, don't go past that point, we know. And they, yeah, yeah, we'll do what we're told, you know, as obedient children, we do everything you say, mum and dad, of course you do. And so they're, they're swimming along. And I turned and I looked at Jackie and I started to talk to Jackie. And then all of it was literally a split second. I looked at Jackie, then I looked over her head. And when I, my eyes came back to the water, all I saw was Johnny. His nose and lips out of the water and his fingertips and I could see him going under like this. I could tell his little feet under the water. He's trying to get his grip, but he's just slowly going further and further. Well, I'll tell you what. I jumped over Jackie like an Olympic hurdler. Seriously, there should have been a camera there that day. I let, I, from a sitting, flat sitting bang straight over the top like a springbok, I was over it. And I bolted down. By the time I got to the water, Johnny was gone. And it was brown water. And I threw my hand in like this and I hit something on Johnny and I grabbed him. And I pulled Johnny up out of the water. When I got him up out of the water, he went like this. He went, huh? 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 Then he started screaming. He was just silent for about 20 seconds. No, no, just looking, frozen. Then he realized what had happened. He starts screaming. I wrap my arms around him and I'm hugging him. And then I hand him over to mum and he's having a cuddle with mum. Then the day went on, I went inside later on. I remember sitting down watching the cricket later on that day and all of a sudden I felt like I went into shock. This was a couple of hours later. I realised the gravity of what had happened, that we nearly lost our son. But here's what was interesting about it. At no point, no point, was I even that interested in the fact that he disobeyed me. He was in that situation because he didn't do what I said. I didn't care. I just wanted to get him out of the water. I just wanted to save him. He put himself there by being deliberately disobedient to me. I didn't care. I didn't want to stand there and lecture him and say, if, if you should have done things differently, you should have been better. I didn't want to stand there and say, oh, I've done everything and you, you blew it. All I cared about was I just wanted to save that kid. I just wanted to get him out of there. Afterwards, at no point did I want to go back and scold him and rip into him. And I just wanted to save the kid. You know, I think God is like that. I think God is like that. We need to understand the power of grace because we stand by it and we're here because of it. But you know what? That's our message to the world as well. I don't care that you got in there because you disobeyed God. I don't care. I just want to see you get out of that and start walking with God because you know what? All that other stuff, the Holy Spirit is really, really good at journeying with that and dealing with that and Helping people change and transform. That's, that's what he does. That's what he does. 
I just wanted to save that kid. And I think God feels the same way towards humanity. He, he sees planet Earth and he looks down from heaven and he just sees people drowning. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but should have everlasting life. And verse 17, which I think is probably more powerful. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world would be saved through him. That's the heart of our Father for you. If it wasn't for the sustaining grace of God, you would have drowned this week. I would have drowned this week. God loves us. It's a simple message, but such a powerful and profound message as well. I'll leave it at that. We'll carry on the next few weeks. I've got a few more points there that I want to have a look at. But if I can just summarise. Number one, the old agreement was between God and a nation. The new agreement between God and individuals of every nation. Be very careful reaching back, working out your theology of how God sees you. Go forward into the new. Israel rose on the back of its great faith in God and it fell along with it as well. The church rises on the back of God's great faith in man. God's great faith in man. You're here because God believes in you, because God loves you, because God's grace sustains you. And I think that's an awesome note on which we should finish uh, this morning. So, Father, thank you for your goodness, God. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. God, this is new. This should be new territory for many of us, God, as we try to grapple with what, what are we meant to look like today, God, this new movement when you launch this thing, Jesus, when you said go into all the world, you had a vision of what the people of God would look like. And Father, we're on that journey towards becoming that people. But Lord, we need to see it. We need a vision of it, God. We need to understand it one step at a time in order to go there. So Lord, I just pray, Father, for each person here, Lord, the things that we spoke about today, that Father, we'd search our own hearts. God, do we, do we believe that you love us? God, do we believe that we are sustained by grace? Father, or do we think that you love us, you love us not, you love us, you love us not, based on our own performance, whether we're good, bad, indifferent. Lord, I pray you get to the core of our own beliefs and the core of our own value system. And take us on this journey, Father. We're not doing this to be religious, God. We, we dead said are here, God. You've put us in Ganelabar uh, 2019 and you've put us here for a reason. We don't understand everything, but we do know that we're called to make a difference. We're called to be salt and we're called to be light in the place where you've put us, Father. And that's... It's what we want to do. Father, we love you. We thank you for the death, burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that moment in human history that changed everything for us. And Lord, I pray in the next seven days as we go from this place, give everybody in this room an opportunity to tell somebody about the goodness of God. Father, somebody who up to this point doesn't understand it or doesn't know it. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Enjoy the rest of your long weekend. Uh, we're going to hang around up the front here. If anybody would like prayer, we're happy to, to, to pray with you and join our faith and and uh, believe with you for whatever's going on in your world. But uh, other than that, enjoy the rest of your day. Uh, um, two weeks' time, um, Kathy's heading off to Emmaus. So can I just... Yep, it's awesome. So can I be encouraging you now? Why don't we all, as a, as a family, just in your quiet times with the Lord each day, start praying. Start praying for Kathy and for that time because I believe that God's got some awesome stuff for you and he's going to meet you there and he wants to give you a greater revelation of his heart for you and his love for you as well through that experience. So.
And Connor, that's right. Connor, you're, you're, um, you're going to the men's one this week and you're doing a, a talk, is that right? Oh, Connor's going to be speaking. So pray for Connor this week as well. And the men's walk actually starts on Friday. So if you can be praying for the men that are doing the Emmaus walk as well, that starts this Friday up at Mount Tambourine too. That would be uh, awesome. So bless you guys. Enjoy the rest of your day. May the roosters win or the raiders. It's all in the lap of the gods. Amen.